you to turn with me in your Bibles to page 266. 266 and 267 are where we find 1 Samuel. We're going to read the first and a portion of the second chapter. We're going to read Hannah's song. We're going to include it in our consideration. We're going to study it all. We're going to not cover it all. We're not going to manage to get too deep into some aspects of the portion of Scripture we're going to read, but we are going to cover all of what is contained in chapters 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 10 in our message this morning. With your Bibles open, let's come before the Lord in a prayer for illumination. Shall we pray? Merciful God and Father, in our hands we hold the most powerful light. There's no lighthouse in the world so great as it shines out into the darkness as your word. There is no laser, Lord, that science has invented so piercing as your word. There is in our hands, Lord, a more glorious light than the very sun itself that hangs in the morning sky. Yet, Lord, our eyes, by nature, are blind. For that light shines, but we do not see it. That light warms, but we do not feel it. That light leads, but we do not know it. So we pray, Heavenly God and Father, acknowledging that we, by nature, are all blind. We now bow before your throne of grace and plead with you for your Spirit's presence and power. That you would open our eyes more clearly. We who believe, we who know your saving grace in Jesus Christ, open our eyes again to see the wonder of your love. And to those who are blind yet, who by nature have not yet come to know your saving work in Jesus Christ, open their eyes, we now pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Then 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On that day, or on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. And therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, 
And I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord, and Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went away and ate, and her face no longer was sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked him from the Lord, or I've asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O Lord, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing in your, here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, I don't think any of us would disagree 
that the time in which we are currently living is a, an increasingly difficult time. We don't want to overstate the case. We've been reminded of our refugee family and some of the suffering that they have endured already in their life. We think of brothers and sisters in persecuted parts of the world. We think of those that are under persecution in places like China and the Middle East. And we recognize that there are, in the history of the world, many who have suffered far greater than we are right now. Indeed, we have very good reason to rejoice for the peace and the prosperity of our land, that we live in an ordered country and one that is still ruled by law. But we do see, we see some very dark clouds on the horizon. We see, you might say, the workers of our, of our society busily tearing down what had once been built upon the foundation of God and His Word. I don't know if you've been following the news lately in the news about 24 Sussex, the residence where the Prime Minister lives. Apparently it's rat infested. Nobody can be in there anymore and there's talk of tearing it down. That's a pretty decent metaphor for what's going on in our world, in our country right now. And it ought to give us great concern. It ought to give us great concern as church community, as individuals, as parents, as school community. The the message that the world is drilling into our minds is so uh, destructive, depressing, divisive, and damnable that it ought to give us great concern as we see our leaders, our thought leaders, our political leaders, our economic leaders insisting that we accept all of this foolishness, this rebellion against God. And when we start to think about just what it is that we're facing as a community, as a Christian community, again, not overemphasizing, not overstating the case, but being being realistic, recognizing what's in front of us, when we start to think about the things of this world, sometimes we can get discouraged. We can get very down. Think of a a young family who have been given life to raise in the fear of the Lord. How do they keep their son, their daughter, free from the stain of sin of this fallen world? How do they keep them out of the woke culture? How do they keep them out of all of the things of this world? You can hardly do it. I mean, maybe you can keep your children from having devices, from having iPads and iPhones and all the rest, but only for a time. And even then, the world still finds a way. The world still finds a way to penetrate our hearts and our minds, our thoughts. You watch a hockey game and you can't but be confronted with a worldly philosophy that seeks to undo what the Lord has done. It can be discouraging. It can be dark. It can be depressing. I think we ought to be honest about that. And that ought to also motivate us every week to get back into God's house, to hear His word of encouragement and His word of blessing. Because that's what we've just read. We've just read a story that is perfectly suited for our current circumstance as church and community. It's a story that takes place in the days of the judges. Maybe around the time of Samson. Do you know 
what God said about the days of the judges. Do you remember how the book of Judges ends with that refrain? The book of Judges is one of those depressing books. It's a discouraging one that makes you wonder what's wrong with us, what's wrong with God's people. Well, we're told repeatedly this is what was wrong in those days. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time of great immorality. It was a time of great perversion. We'll come to see that when we consider Hophni and Phinehas and their wickedness. It was a time in which the church was flawed and broken and failing desperately. It was a time that was not unlike our own. And into that darkness, into that brokenness, we suddenly meet a little ray of light. Because we meet Elkanah, a godly man, a Levite. We don't always pay attention to all those sons of this one, that one, and the next one, but it is important here because it means that he's a Levite. He's not living, he's living in Judean territory or in in the southern, he's living in in Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country, rather not of Judah, but of Ephraim. So he's not living amongst the Levites necessarily, but he's definitely a Levite. And he's a godly man. He's a godly man, a good man. He takes his family to worship every year at the temple in Shiloh. And again, this is in the days of the judges, remember? This is when everyone's doing what's wicked in their own eyes. Everybody else is living in sin. Everybody else has said to God, no. And to say to, said to Baal and Ashtoreth, yes. And remember that Baal and Ashtoreth in their worship were perverse. The sexual immorality of those deities is incredible. Again, a connection to our day. And yet he went to church regularly, took his family to church to worship at the high holy days that were prescribed those three times a year that all men in Israel were to come to the Lord in the place where his tent, where his tabernacle dwelt and they were to worship him. He brought his family with him so that they could worship alongside with him. He's a godly man. He's a good man. A husband who tries in his way to be an encouragement to his family, to his grieving wife, to his broken wife. A grateful husband and father who will give at the end of this story more abundantly to the Lord than you can begin to imagine. This is a good, believing, godly man. Now you say, wait a second. How can you say that he's got two wives? And that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? It is a bit of a problem, for sure it is. But we don't hear that information in order to put Elkanah down, though we know from the broader testimony of Scripture it's wrong. What we hear when we read 1 Samuel 1 is that he was a good and godly man, a fine husband and father, but a husband and father with a problem. Was the problem the tension that lived in his house? Well, sort of. Hannah, whose name, by the way, means grace. That becomes important and significant. She has no children. While her sister wife, Peninnah, who may have been married for this reason, you understand, it may have been that Elkanah could not have children with Hannah and it was so important to have children 
that he chooses to marry a second wife, all the while keeping Hannah, all the while preferring Hannah, loving her, obviously, more than Peninnah. Not unlike Rachel and Leah, not unlike Jacob years before. But Peninnah has children and Hannah does not. And Peninnah endlessly provokes, endlessly attacks, endlessly puts down her first or the first wife in the family, Hannah. The text is clear on that. Year after year, she drills it into that woman's heart. You are lost. You are forgotten. You are unworthy. You have no children because God is against you. Oh yes, don't miss that either. The reason Hannah could not have children was because the Lord had closed her womb. Twice we're told that in quick succession. Because the Lord had closed her womb. That sometimes can be a very discouraging thing to understand, that God in His providence is involved in these things. And if God is involved in these things, why would He leave Hannah to grieve so? Why would He put her in a situation where she should suffer so? We wrestle with that sometimes in God's dealings with us and with our loved ones. We wonder sometimes what the Lord's doing and why He's doing it. Why does Hannah have to suffer at the hands of her Lord? But of course, the story's not quite done yet, is it? That's the thing we tend to have a problem with. We, get, we make judgments before the story's done. Wait till the story's done and then make your judgments. Now, while Canna knew that his wife bore the heavy weight of this burden, every woman that has struggled with the process of giving birth knows that grief and that weight. Every family does, every parent, or every uh, husband, rather. And every year, while the food is doled out, Hannah is given a portion that reminds her of her inability to bear children. Every time he tries to be nice to her, but by being nice to her, again says, Hannah, you're barren. He tries to comfort her with words of tender devotion, but it doesn't pass the pain and sorrow that is in her heart, the grief that she bears. And every year as they return to the house of the Lord, and each year this story repeats itself. Hannah, you're unworthy. And there's nothing that can be done about it. That in the end was in fact the real problem you understand in Elkanah's house. This was the real problem. Was there was nothing Elkanah, nothing Hannah, nothing Peninnah. Peninnah wouldn't have wanted to do anything about it, but nothing they could do about it. Nothing that they could accomplish to overturn this curse. And a curse it was, understand that. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, 28, verse 18, the Lord warns His people. He says to them, If you forget Me, if you do choose not to love and serve Me, then I will curse you. I will send the curses of My covenants upon you. And those curses are listed. Those curses are described, including the closing of the womb. And remember again, this is during the time of the judges. Israel is unfaithful. The nation has forgotten the Lord, and so the Lord has rightly. Because of Israel's failure, we blame God for what happens. It's Israel's fault. Israel refuses to serve the Lord. And what happens? The Lord says, I'm going to give you what you asked for. I warned you, do not disobey me or I will curse you. You've disobeyed me. Now don't complain about the curse. 
Now, but you say, wait a second, how can that be fair? Elkanah's a godly man. He's coming to worship. Why should he suffer while he's not one of those that has forgotten the Lord? The Lord is not nearly as individualistic as we like to be. And the Lord doesn't see life the way that we do. He sees his church and he calls his church to repentance by bringing upon them the burden of his judgment. And indeed, there is the great burden of Hannah's closed womb. That it is the Lord that stands against her, the Lord who condemns the wickedness of his people, the Lord who refuses to bless those who reject him. And against such a grief, who can provide deliverance? Can you overturn God's judgment against a wicked nation? Can you stop God from keeping his word faithful? Can you prevent God from bringing pain upon your life, your children's lives, your friends' lives? Absolutely not. As godly as Elkanah was, for all of his words of good cheer and love, he was powerless to lift his wife from the sorrow that the wickedness of the age had brought upon her. He was impotent against the curse of God's righteous wrath. Not only could he not open the way for her to conceive and bear a son, he could not lead the unfaithful nation back to the Lord. He could not cause them to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. He couldn't overcome that curse That there was no king in Israel and all did what was right in their own eyes. He could not bring the nation to fear their God. That was the real problem. Hannah's barrenness is symptomatic of a greater truth. Just as the burden of sin today is always symptomatic of a deeper, darker, more despairing truth. Think of it. Today, Hannah's grief would not be the weight it was in her day. Not with technology, not with the opportunities to adopt. It would be a burden undoubtedly, but it would not have the same weight as it did for her. The mothers of our congregation do not stand in the same place that Hannah did. But what about the addicts in our congregation? As their numbers inevitably rise, a reminder of the brokenness of our world. What can you do to free them from those chains? What about those that are struggling with same-sex attraction? Or maybe not struggling with same-sex attraction? Does not the Lord describe the increase of this sin as His righteous judgment for a people that have rejected Him in Romans 1 verse 24? Don't zero in on the individuals now. But just notice that even within the church, their numbers rise. And that the rest of our culture's numbers rise too. And ask yourself, what's changed? Why are there so many that struggle with this sin? Why are there suddenly so many that identify as the other gender or no gender? And why why do we have to have all of these lists of descriptors to try and identify ourselves now? That's not the way things were even a few decades ago. What has changed? You say, well, we got the wrong government. That's too simplistic. 
well, we got bad teachers in university. That's true, but that's too simplistic. What you need to see is that the Lord has given our nation up, has given this place up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. And the church also suffers those burdens. And now who among us can lift that burden? Think of the parent grieving over a wayward child. Think of those weighed down by loneliness. Consider the spouse of a marriage that's imploding around them. Think of the one who mourns the loss of precious life. Can you stop the pain? Can you stop the grief? Can you speak precious words that will make things better? Can you give a gift that will suddenly replace the loss of this life that is so dear? Can you make it better by defeating the root cause of all this grief? If you think you can, you're a fool. Like Elkanah, we try. Oh, we try. We say silly things. But there's nothing we can do. There's nothing Elkanah could do. There's nothing Hannah could do. That's the real grief. And that's what drives Hannah to the tabernacle after the dinner table was cleared. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah arose. And Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. It's actually literally the palace of the Lord. That's what it says in the Hebrew, the palace of the Lord, which isn't accurate either, but neither is temple of the Lord. The author of Samuel is trying to say something to us here because it was a tabernacle. It was a tent. Remember, this is before Solomon. This is before the temples built in Jerusalem. This is, this is the nomadic Israel still. They, they aren't established yet. And, and all of a sudden the author says, but wait a sec, temple, temple, temple's coming. Throws in this little word just to encourage our hearts a bit, just to remind us of better things, just to lift our eyes out of the darkness and see that there's a light coming. A light that comes because of the resident of this place, the opulence, the opulence of this place of worship, this tabernacle, this tent, is not the walls, the skins that made up those walls, the beauty of the jewelry that adorned it. No, what made this place a palace was that there lived a king in it. The king, the king of kings, and the Lord of hosts. Maybe you noticed the Lord of hosts was used in this chapter already twice. If you read from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to 1 Samuel 1, you will read the Lord of hosts, the name the Lord of hosts, zero times. This is the first time that description of God is used in the Bible. And that's important. Because that means God's showing us something about Him. A new revelation, a new description of who God is. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of power. The Lord who rules unmatched over all of life. Who can stand before the might of this God. 
Who can prevent this God from doing what He decrees? He is the Lord of hosts. And it is to this God that Hannah now pours out her heart. She cries out to the Lord, Lord, give me a son and I will give him back to you. Now it is tempting at this moment to imagine that she's bargaining with God. That she's bartering with God. A spiritual quid pro quo. Give me a son and I'll give him back. Which doesn't really actually make a lot of sense, by the way, if this is in fact a story about a barren woman who desires to have a child. That's how often this passage is preached. It's preached as an encouragement to those who are struggling with childbirth to be in prayer before the Lord. If that's the case, this is the weirdest fulfillment of that desire there is because she ends up not having a child in the end. Oh yeah, she has a child. She gives birth to it. But that child is essentially lost to her when she brings him to the temple. And in the end, she's not that much better off. Then this vow is more akin to Jephthah's vow, one that gains a temporary blessing only to lose it ultimately in the end. And it doesn't really resonate with what she says because she not only says, Lord, give me a child and I'll give him back to you, but she says, and no razor will touch his head. He, he will be devoted to you. Well, yes, he would be because he's a Levite. Any child of Hannah's would be already in his way devoted to the Lord. But he wouldn't be a Nazarite for all the days of his life. That's, that's what she's saying. He'll be a Nazarite, Lord, all the days of his life. And that's unusual. The only other person who had been so designated in this point in redemptive history was a fellow by the name of Samson, in whose time Hannah may have been living. And who may have heard and seen that and said, ah, ah, there's a connection there. There's another, by the way, another who will be a Nazarite. There's three in the Bible. Three in all of the Bible. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Another preparer for a king. Surely none of this is a coincidence, is it? None of this is accidental. In the time of the judges, as Israel struggled with faithfulness to our Lord, there's a woman suffering under the burden of God's covenantal judgment, and she cries out to God to give her, not a son, but a judge, a leader, a restorer of Israel. That's what she asks for. Maybe it is a coincidence. Maybe you say, you know, ah, Reverend Dykstra, you're dreaming in technicolor. She's just asking for a son. Maybe. And maybe it's just a coincidence then that Hannah uses the language taken directly out of redemptive history to make her request to the Lord. She takes the words from God's greatest, most powerful act of deliverance and she makes them her own. In Exodus 33 verse 7, when the Lord, before the Lord extended his mighty arm to deliver his people, he said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. And now Hannah quotes almost word for word saying, look on the affliction of your servant. You know how you delivered your people in the past? Deliver us now, she says. 
And so she understands what is at issue here. She understands what's going on in this moment of history, that this isn't about Hannah. Her burden, her suffering has focused her thinking and purified her spirit because she cries out for more than just a child to be held in her arms. She calls out for one to lead Israel back to the Lord. Notice that she doesn't just pray for a child. She prays for a son. I suppose if we saw life as the world sees life, we'd say something about the patriarchy at this point. We'd talk about misogyny and we'd talk about how Israel was so oppressive, but that misses the point. The promise of a son is a cord that binds all of God's redemptive promises together. It's the opening promise of God in Genesis 3.15. It's what prompted Abram to question God in Genesis 15. It's what moved the great dragon to attack the children of Israel by Pharaoh in Egypt. You cannot understand the Old Testament unless you understand the promise of a son, not as an economic blessing, not as a genetic or biological blessing, no, but as a redemptive blessing, as the promise of salvation in the midst of a darkness so great we cannot lift it. For this promised son would do what no other son could do. He would crush the head of the serpent. He would defeat the great enemy of the people by his power. And he would deliver the suffering and sorrowing people of God from the curse of the covenant. That's what Hannah's praying for as she cries out to the Lord of hosts, Save your people, Lord. Save your people. Not by her son, that you should also know. She knows her son's not the Messiah. He'll be a Nazarite. He will work in the service of the king. He will be a warrior, for that's what Nazarites were, warrior, warriors in the service of a king, a servant whose ministry field was the entire nation and who would serve the people for their coming king, the promised one. Hannah's not asking for the king to be born from her empty womb. What she's asking for is John the Baptist to be born from her womb. One who will lead the people back to the king. Because she knows that the only hope Israel has at this moment is in the Lord's anointed. Oh, she knows she needs a Messiah. She knows Israel needs a Messiah. And laying hold of that promise of a Messiah, Hannah asks God to use her in service to this great goal. She's not so much as saying, give me a son, as she's saying, give or use me rather in your promised plan to defeat your enemies as you fulfill your promise to defeat sin and death. Use me, Lord, in whatever capacity you have designed for me. Use me, Lord, that your people might be redeemed. Now you say, wait a second, that's reading way too much into this. I've never heard Hannah preach that way before. That's why we read from chapter 2. Because Hannah tells us exactly what happened in chapter 1 by her song. She says, Here, you want to know what happened? I'm going to sing a song about what just happened. And listen to what the Lord has done. Read again the words of this song and hear what this woman of faith understood the Lord to be doing. Or even better yet, just flip your pages forward to the fulfillment of this event. Go read the Magnificat of Mary as she celebrates the coming of the Messiah and sings the song of Hannah. 
in praise of the God who's forming the Messiah in her womb, Mary sings this song because she knows it's about the Messiah. She knew what Hannah was singing about. Hannah's prayer is the prayer of a woman who knows her God and knows His power and promises and who claims them for her own. Just listen to how that song ends. For the Lord will judge the ends of the earth and He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. That word, anointed, is just the word Messiah. Is just the word Christ. He will exalt the horn of His Christ. Hannah reaches all the way forward to the days of Mary and says, you want to know what's happening? That's what's happened. You want to know why I was given a son? That's why I was given a son. Because the Messiah is coming. Because He's coming to lift the burden of my grief. Because He's coming to save me from what I cannot save myself from. Hannah saw with such clarity her desperate need and she gripped it with tenacious faith. And she challenges us to do the same thing today. All around us, our fellow men, know the pain of this world's curse. Yet their solution is not like Hannah's. They seek political solutions, chemical solutions, economic and social, sexual solutions. If I can just be myself, then I'll be happy. There's always a then, always a then. If this, then it'll be better. And their solutions do more damage than good. They castrate their youth. They murder their infants. They put their elderly to death. Their, pro- their solutions are terrifying to the problems of this life. But Hannah, burdened by the weight of Peninnah's ridicule, weak and unable to lift the curse that lay upon her, though her husband sought to love her enough, rushes into the very courts of the living God, the Lord of hosts, and cries out to Him to be faithful to His promises. Here is the posture of the believer. Here is the position of those who know their utter frailty and the Lord's unimaginable power. What does the hymn writer say? Oh, what needless pain we bear because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Not that God is some genie, some magical power that grants us three wishes when we ask properly. No, Hannah does not come with anything in her hands to bargain with before the Lord, to bribe Him into fulfilling His request. She has emptiness, absolute emptiness. But that's why she cries out and says, God, You are fullness itself. You are, far, you are able to do far more than we ask or imagine. And You have promised this. You have promised to lift the curse, to lift the chains of sin that enslave us, to defeat the addictions, to defeat the immorality, to defeat the pride and the brokenness, to defeat the division and the destruction. 
And she cries out, God, keep your word. Be faithful to your promise through the coming Messiah and use me to bring this about. And now imagine, given that that is what the text tells us is happening, now go back to to. Ramath with Alcana and Hannah and Peninnah and the brood of children Peninnah has. And sit for a moment with Hannah. She feels something. A fluttering in her belly. A movement. And now ask yourself what's going on. What joy must have filled her whole heart and soul? What amazement must have gripped her mind when she felt those first movements of the child in her womb? But what's going on? God is obviously answering the prayer of this woman. We know that. But what else is going on? Is that all that's going on? At first it seems that way when this child is born and names him Samuel. It sounds like the Hebrew word to ask, which, by the way, is used four times in the Hebrew language uh, in the verses 27 through 28. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. In the Hebrew, four times she uses the word ask. And Samuel sounds like ask. Although weirdly, it means literally the name of God is El. You know how God in Hebrew is called Elohim, sometimes just called El? Samuel's name literally translated is the name of God is El. There is actually a character, by the way, whose name means asked for in the Bible, in the book Samuel. We'll meet him in a while. He's the first king of Israel, the one Israel asks for, but is no good for them. But Samuel, Samuel is the one who displays the power of the living God, who shows you that if you want hope, If you want encouragement, you need to know the name of God. The God who is able to bless. Hannah and Elkanah, they recognize what God is doing, that it is more than just a matter of Hannah's being satisfied with a new life, that it is in fact that God is redeeming for himself a people. That's why when they come to give thanks to the Lord after the weaning of Samuel, at about three years old probably, They brought, more likely, they brought three bulls. Our text says one bull, and there's a reason for that. The Greek version of the Old Testament says one bull, but the Hebrew version of the Old Testament says three bulls. And it's probably three bulls because they also brought an ephah of flour, which is three times the amount necessary to give for the sacrifice that's required. It seems as though they've tripled what they had to bring. 
and three bulls. This, this is a wealthy man. This is a man with some means. But he withholds nothing. He gives it to the Lord in praise of his name. Because joy at the knowledge that God has stretched out his arm to save his people, not only in Hannah's favor, but in a movement to deliver his people from their brokenness, causes even Elkanah to rejoice and to say wonderful things to the Lord about his grace. They see the unfurling power of God's saving work. Hannah rejoices to see God's goodness. And how much more than shouldn't we? Especially today in the darkening days of our culture, in the drawing to the end of Western civilization, with so much uncertainty before us, with so much fear and anxiety, with so much strain and stress, we will not be free from the brokenness that is like a tidal wave washing over our nation. But while our world will suffer without hope, we do not. Because what Hannah anticipated in this event, what she cried out for in the face of her hopelessness, just like we're hopeless, we have received in its fullness in Jesus Christ. And our conviction needs to be that we have the answer. We have the power. We have the deliverance. In the face of this broken world, in the face of its pain and sorrow, in the struggles of living in the wilderness of this life, we have one greater than Samuel. We have the Son of God, born in the flesh, who died and rose again. We have the victor. We have the Messiah. We can say with great confidence, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. We all come into this place We come into this worship service with griefs and sorrows. We're all like Hannah at some point. If we're not today, we will be. We don't always want to admit it. And we don't always want to be delivered from our griefs. We are foolish that way. Nursing our wickedness instead of fleeing from it. But when we come to our end, and come into the very presence of the Lord, then He holds out in His power before our very eyes the glorious fulfillment of His promise to deliver from the pain and misery of this fallen world, from being unable to conceive a child in our womb, from the loneliness of life, from the sinful desires of life, from the dark clouds of illness, from the strain of anxiety and fear He comes to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And He said, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what this passage is about. That's what this book is about. And that's what we need to be about. Let's ask the Lord for that in prayer. 
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for the greatest gift of all, the gift of Jesus Christ. And we are grateful, Lord, that you showed your faithfulness to that promise so long ago in the life of Hannah. And we are grateful, Lord, that you opened her womb and that you brought forth life from her, a life that was used to lead your people back to you. And we rejoice, Lord, to know that you are the God who settles the barren woman with children in her arms. And we pray that. We pray that also for those in our own congregation who may struggle under that burden. We know it's a heavy one. But may they know, Lord, that Jesus Christ has come and that they have an answer. They have a solution greater than any child could ever be. And not only for those that may be struggling with pregnancy, Lord, but those that are struggling in their marriage, those that are struggling in their own sinful desires, those that are struggling with addiction. Lord, we all come into here with our brokenness that can seem so hopeless and helpless at times, so impossible to overcome. But may we be again convinced that while we can't overcome it, you have in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.